Welcome to another episode of Monday, Monday Afternoon, afternoon. Theologian. And here we are again on another. Uh, wait a minute. This is unfair. I realize we've been doing this now for at least 15 episodes, and I keep saying Monday afternoon, and that's just not fair. I need to give you a chance to do that. So you want to take that one today, Rick? Sure. Here we are again on another Monday afternoon I like the lilt at the end. That was good. Gave me something to look forward to. I was waiting for it, waiting for it. Uh, that's good. There it was. There it was. Uh, do you realize that our podcast has become a teenager? And really? we're at Sweet 16 today. Ah, how about that? I guess we're going to have to go down to the DMV and get a driver's license. <laughs> That's right. Our fellow theologians will celebrate with us. We ask you to pop a party popper right there where you are listening today. <laughs> Unless you're on an airplane. <laughs> Maybe we can get a GoFundMe page for the insurance. <laughs> That's going to be expensive. We need a GoFundMe <laughs> for that one, man. No kidding. <laughs> I know that some people listen to these things on airplanes because I spoke to a guy yesterday who's a pilot. And he was excited to know that we had the podcast and he asked me to send him a link. So he said he has a commute from Michigan to Colorado where he flies out of. So he's got a little time on his hands. So I don't want him to pop a party popper in the cabin of an airplane. That might not go well for him. That would be bad. <laughs> but it also means that if any of our listeners know other pilots, they can recommend this podcast for those pilots. So they have something to do when they're on their long commutes flying back and forth from their hub cities. That would, I'm sure, relate to a lot of our listeners. So that's a great idea. And they would be correct in saying it is 100% recommended by a pilot. But not Pontius Pilot. Not Pontius Pilot, just a pilot. Because it's only <laughs> the only pilot I know, but he did recommend it. We don't want to exaggerate. So we want to make sure that we're accurate. <laughs> one out of one pilots. <laughs> that's 100%. It is. Well, enough with the banter. Come on, let's get serious today, shall All we? All right. It is I a mean, serious subject. It is, actually. Sweet 16 doesn't seem to fit with the subject of what we're talking about today. And please give us the question in slightly more expansive form based on the title there. Because our title, we had to shrink it because it wouldn't fit on your computer screen. <laughs> but what is the question we're going to wrestle with today? Well, it's a question that actually comes out of the last two episodes. Those we were dealing with the concept of sin and how to deal with it. But today we're going to look at, are there different levels of sin? And if so, what do they mean in relation to my salvation? Because a lot of people are kind of scared about it because they think, what do I do with it if I keep sinning? What if, you know, there's a lot of what ifs to go with that. So we're going to talk through a bunch of stuff. We're going to cross denominational lines a little bit. No. No, 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 no. Yes, it's true. We're allowed? Of course we're allowed, because if okay. we were silent, we wouldn't be allowed. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll loudly talk about that crossing denominational boundaries then. But one of the things that we probably ought to talk about are some misconceptions. We probably ought to go see Adam and Jamie from Mythbusters, because there are some myths that, that kind of surround the misconcept, the misconceptions that we want to talk about. 
So why don't you take myth one? Any reference to the Mythbusters is purely for the purpose of illustration and is not to be construed as an endorsement of or a commercial pitch for or against the television show by the same name. Any resemblance between Clark and Rick and Adam and Jamie are purely coincidental. Monday Afternoon Theologians is not receiving any payment in any form of currency or cryptocurrency from any television show, including the Mythbusters. Family members of the Mythbusters are not eligible to participate in any future giveaways offered by Monday Afternoon Theologians, should they ever do so, which is unlikely because they have nothing to give away i really wish we had an adam and jamie mask that we could each put. <laughs> i think you'd make a better jamie and i'd make a better adam possibly just because i'm a little more squirrely but anyway if i were adam and i was setting up the first myth i would say jamie jamie i'm so excited about this because i want to look at this myth god set up penalties for sin as a seat as a season <laughs> cut take two God set up penalties for sin as a reason to punish people. Okay. It would be like a demerit system. I heard that people in colleges used to have these demerit systems, and if they broke one of the rules, they would be given points that were like negative points. <laughs> and if you accrued enough of these negative points, then there was a penalty at the end. And so that's kind of the way people look at this thing. So that's a myth that we need to bust. So how would we go about trying to bust this myth? Well, one of the ways is we can actually look at a story that comes to us from the Bible. It's in John chapter 9. It really is very straightforward about this. It's about a man who was born blind. And the disciples were asking Jesus, who sinned, him or his parents, that he was born blind? Almost as if the blindness was a penalty that was a result of either his parents' sin or his own sin. Right. And Jesus said to him, Neither. It wasn't his parents. It wasn't him. It happened so that the works of God might be displayed using him as part of the example. Mm. He's there, blind man in front of him. He tells his disciples, while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And he's going to demonstrate that. He spits on the ground, makes a little mud, rubs it on the blind man's eyes. He says, go to this particular pool, wash the, the mud out of your eyes, which he did. And he came back, and he was no longer blind. Even his neighbors were confused. They go, isn't this the same guy that's been sitting out here begging all these years? He kind of looks like him, but I'm not so sure. So he says, I'm the guy. <laughs> and, and they said, well, then how are your eyes open? And he said, well, there's this guy, Jesus. And he made some mud, told me to go wash. I did. I came back. Now I can see. Mm-hmm. So we see that he was blind, which some would say could have been punishment for sin, mm -hmm. but instead it was the glory of God that was demonstrated through his blindness and through his only son. I see the connection there with what you made when you said that the fact that they thought that there had to have been a sin, that there was a, a connection between his blindness and a sin. It was like the demerit that he got for it. There's exactly. a, neg a negative consequence always associated with sin to the Pharisees. Okay. Jesus busted that myth all to pieces. Of course he did. <laughs> and I'm sure there's another myth that you can relate that uh, we can bust here as well. Yes. It's another one that kind of reminds me a little bit, quite frankly, of the Pharisees. And this myth is God is more concerned with our sin behavior than he is with a relationship with his beloved children. 
you know, you can really see how the Pharisees fit into this one. But oh, give, yeah. us some, give us some more information on the inside into this one. Sure. Well, if that statement was true, if God really is more concerned about just checks and minuses and a sin behavior because he's this disciplinarian with his hand back ready to slap people up every time they sin, then our salvation would depend on our ability to behave correctly. So that if we could behave well and just not sin all the time, then we would have salvation. And we all know that's just impossible. We can't do that. We talked about this before. We've had this talk before. Since our salvation is based on God's grace and not on our works, then we know that this myth is busted. Illustration pops into my mind. Have you ever met somebody that they behaved in such a way that they were always going after the shock value? It's like they just were doing anything they could to shock you morally or whatever, as, as though they were saying, I just dare you to love me back. <laughs> I've known a few folks like that. Yeah, I had and, one in my household for a while. Oh, okay. That, so <laughs> this is getting right down into brass tacks, personal illustration there. All right. Well, I'm sure all of us as parents probably have seen that at some degree or other with our own children, no doubt. It's like they're saying, I just dare you to love me, even though I'm going to do this thing that you told me not to do, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> And we've done that, I'm sure, but because we're concerned about the relationship, what do we do about that? Well, we keep loving them. We just keep loving them. And hopefully we reaffirm our love for them, even though we're disappointed in their behavior. But just because they keep behaving badly doesn't mean we've stopped loving them. I've actually had that talk with my kids when they were in that adolescent stage, going through some, I'm testing the boundaries and I want to see if my parents really meant that when they said, this is bad for you. <laughs> They were going to try it anyway. And I would say, you know how I feel about this. I think this behavior is very dangerous. And because it is, I don't want you to do it. But I still need you to know that I love you. But I need you to know that it's because of my love for you that I don't want you to do it. Because I hate the thing that could damage you. I hate the thing that could bring harm to you or others. And I think that is an illustration of what happens with Jesus. It's the same with God. It was his love that drew sinners to himself, and he's still doing that. And it was Jesus who was loving people and demonstrating sacrificial love for them, even while they were still sinning, which proves, in my opinion, that it just busts that myth, busted, that God is more concerned about sinful behavior than he is about a relationship. I think he's far more concerned about relationship than he is about the behavior. But we have to quickly add on a, a little parentheses at the end to say, but it's that loving relationship that causes us to want to change our behavior then. Yeah, we see all through both the Old and the New Testament that there were consequences for sin at various times. Sometimes it was very dramatic. Sometimes it wasn't quite so much. But in all of those cases, God was trying to uh, either do something, say, in the nation of Israel or in the life of a particular person. Mm -hmm. But all of the restrictions that he put on and all of the reminders through discipline is telling us that sin is bad for us on a lot of different levels. Yeah. The, the big one, of course, is if we are separated for him from eternity, that's that's a really, really bad thing. But other times it's just the behavior is bad. And if you touch the hot stove, you're going to get burned. There's also a third myth that we want to talk about. Mm -hmm. The good that I do will counteract my sins. 
if I do more good than bad, I'll go to heaven. So there's this great big cosmic scale and it weighs my good, it weighs my bad. Yeah. And if by chance my good is weightier than my bad, uh -huh. then I'm all set. Yeah, that is totally contradictory to what the Bible tells us. And we looked at this in some detail uh, last week. And mm -hmm. the, the two big concepts that we came up with was the Bible tells us that if we're guilty of one sin, then we're guilty of breaking all of the law. Everything is broken. There's nothing that's now clean about us. It also tells us that all of us, every person with the exception of Jesus, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that tells us that we all need a Redeemer whose sinless sacrifice covers every sin. Yeah. So we have to look at it as if it's an, it's an impossible exam based on the commandments. And unless we get 100% all of the answers 100% correct. Right. Have you kept all the commandments? He's asked mm -hmm. some of the folks in the New Testament. If we don't, we fail. Yeah. And because it's pass fail, if we've broken one, we've broken all, we become the lawbreaker. Mm -hmm. That's it. Yeah. And because we're a lawbreaker, we need somebody to pay the penalty for our breaking the law. Ah, myth busted. Busted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's no such thing as the cosmic scale, N not in God's justice system, right? Yeah, well said. Uh, one more interesting thought that pops in related to that. Uh, if you do believe that there is a God, but you think that he's just looking to see at the end of our life whether the good outweighs the bad, then you're always guessing. It's guesswork. Oh, man, I just hope I get in by the skin of my teeth. I hope that there's just enough featherweight more on the good side than the bad to tip the scales in the right direction. And then, man, I slid right in there. Wow. Well, we don't have to hope though. We don't have to hope and guess because we have the assurance. And you had a couple of really good assurance verses about three or four episodes back because of what Christ did for us. We know that we are assured of our salvation, not based on our goodness, but based on his atonement for us on the cross. You know, he talks a lot about, it's not our works because our works are as filthy rags yeah. compared to the robes of righteousness. So we can't work our way in. So trying to set the scale for good and bad is kind of pointless because right. it doesn't matter. It, it's immaterial because we're clothed in his righteousness and mm -hmm. seem totally holy because we're wearing Christ's holiness. And yet we find there's a zillion kinds of sin. And they're outlined in a number of places, in, especially in the New Testament. But we can take a quick look at just some of those. We look at the various words and we know what they mean. But yet if we go all the way back to the original law, we don't always see all of these words in the law itself. But mm -hmm. most of these, we can find that they're a derivative of, you know, one of the Ten Commandments. Yeah. So let's just take a look at, at a few of these. Uh, the first two are kind of the same. There's wickedness. Wickedness. Or evilness. Evilness. One that I think so many of us can relate to now, either you know, something that we have to deal with personally or something we see in the news all the time, is greed. Greed. And what was that line out of Wall Street? Greed, for lack of a better term, is good. 
Yeah. Ooh, a lot yeah. of these things, you see these twists in a lot of things in commercials and in movies and stuff. Like even that first one, Wicked, you know, now we use it as a, a positive adjective. Like, oh, that guy's yeah. wicked smart. Yeah, exactly. Or the musical Wicked. We think of those terms now and they've been used differently so that we have a positive connotation with them. Wasn't so positive in the Bible, though. And a lot of times we see how even the verses themselves would talk about it get twisted. Because a lot of people will say, that money is the root of all evil. But the verse says the love of money is the root of all evil. It's not the money itself. It's the greediness that, that is going to create the problem. Good point. Yeah. Another one, depravity. Depravity. And we see this all the time, all sorts of different ways that good is bad and bad is good. And it's almost as if the whole world is depraved. And I, I came up with a new term as I was just looking at that, because when I see words printed out, things pop into my brain and they're strange, but it's that's the way I'm wired. <laughs> but there is this pull at our soul that Paul talks about in the New Testament quite often about that tug of war in our spirit, which is the sinful nature or the fleshly nature. And that to me is almost like, you ready for this? Depravity, gravity. Depravity, gravity. <laughs> He <laughs> keeps trying to pull us down into our fleshly state, into our sinful state. And we're constantly fighting against depravity, gravity. And that's why he came up with some of that differentiation between the old nature and the new nature. And that's why we have a difference between Romans chapter seven and Romans chapter eight, because in chapter seven, he's losing the battle of depravity, gravity. And he's saying, I do the things that I don't want to do. And I don't do the things that I know I want to do. Who's going to set me free from this? Who's going to help me escape depravity, gravity, and put me into orbit? But then we get to Romans 8, and he's going, oh, good. Now I know how we're going to get free from that. It's because of what Christ did for me, because there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yay, I've been set free from the law of sin and, of sin and guilt. Yay. Oh, a couple other things we see in the same list. Envy. Envy. Kind of equate that with jealousy. They're different, but but very similar. Mm -hmm. And I go back to the, the Ten Commandments where it says, don't covet. Yeah. I mean, this is the, the other side of that, is being envious of what somebody else has had, being jealous of a relationship that you want to have. You're coveting somebody else's wife. That's, mm -hmm. that's not a good thing. And then it says, you know, don't kill, don't murder. Murder. Strife. Strife. I mean, that's a, an easy one to, to see all the time. And they're just button heads, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's politicians, whether it's you know, ideologies, they're just punching each other in the face all day long. An example, I once worked with a couple and they were always at each other. They were married. They were always at each other. Mm -hmm. And one day she made a statement and said, right. Now, he didn't say wrong. He said left. <laughs> yeah, they were always against each other. Oh man, they were they were always in strife. Deceitfulness. Deceitfulness. You see this all the time as well. You know, it's like, who do you trust? Because it sounds like what you're saying is not true. And this guy over here is saying something different, but it also doesn't sound true. And we have to kind of decide who's telling the truth because there's so much deceit going on out there. Yeah. Another one, maliciousness. Maliciousness. See that where somebody is just always 
kind of biting at somebody. They're just mm -hmm. exhibiting malice. And there seems to be some planning in advance to put somebody down associated with that word, in my mind anyway. Like if you hear with malice a forethought, uh -huh. that makes something even worse because it wasn't done in the heat of passion. It was done with rumination or planning because you hate somebody so much that you're willing to actually plan how to get them back. <laughs> so, yeah, maliciousness is a pretty bad thing. Yeah. And a, a pretty big theme that we see in Romans 1 is the, the concept of sexual impurity. Sexual impurity. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I tried to point out before, and I think it's going to pop up fairly often if we get into this category of sin related to sexual impurity, and that is that I think some people in our contemporary society have tried, unfortunately, to kind of rate which sexual sins are worse than others. They've tried to categorize them, and we can't do that. I think all sexual sin is sin, and so we need to lump those sexual sins in with all these other sins in the lists that are lengthy, because if we try to overemphasize one sin above the other, we're really missing the point about God desiring a relationship. And when, when we're in the relationship, then we have a desire not to do the things that would break that relationship, which is why we need the capital R initial repentance to start the journey or the small R repentances. Uh, we talked about that a lot last week. So yeah, there's, there's the small cringe-worthy sexual sins, and then there's the ones that make us want to scream because we think they're so awful, but they're all sexual sin. It's all sexual impurity. So to try to define them and make one above the other, nah. They're all uh, as a result of the, the thief, Satan, who loves to steal and kill and destroy. That's part of his job description. And by taking us into perversions of what God had in mind at the beginning for sex, which should be a really good thing in God's boundaries, then he's stealing and twisting that which God ordained as good and turning it into something that turns out ultimately to be destructive in some way. And we saw, it's been several years ago now, where that very first myth that we talked about, where God was punishing sin, it was what he was doing there, there was a penalty. Yeah. And we saw it when the AIDS epidemic hit the gay community. Mm. And people were saying, see, I told you, God is punishing the gay community for that particular sin. Right. And yet they completely disregarded the fact that there had been all kinds of sexually transmitted diseases between heterosexuals mm -hmm. that had been go going on for hundreds of for perhaps thousands of years, yeah. but they weren't categorizing that the same way. So again, we see that, oh, this makes me cringe. This is cringeworthy in my world. And yet I'm going to say, oh, this one's not quite so bad. But all of that sexual impurity, God says, is sin and therefore needs the big R repentance, or in some cases, the little R repentance. Yeah, good point. Yeah, that's so true. And I, boy, you want to say that with fear and trepidation. For one thing, I don't want people um, who might be involved in some sort of sin, whatever these lists are, to think that we're pointing out one as being worse than another, as though we're singling them out, because we don't want them to think that we're doing We're not. Uh, the whole idea of presenting these things and busting some myths related to sin and are there different levels of sin is to continue to point people back to that relationship that God desires 
because he wants us to love him back so that life for us becomes so much more satisfied forever. (laughs) And as we start doing that, walking with him after the big R repentance, and then there comes that sanctification process with the small R repentances for the rest of our life, it just gets better and better as we learn to really appreciate what he's given us in the gifts of walking within his boundaries. And then when we start to slough off those things that are getting in the way, they they just shrink in importance in our lives. And so all of these things would shrink and fall away the more we get to know him. And I think that's the primary thing that we just keep hitting again and again and again, because it's all about the relationship, the relationship, the relationship. <laughs> yeah, and you talk about how uh, in our minds, there are some that some things that are worse than others. Well, here's a couple that, you know, some people think, oh, that's not so bad. You know, uh, gossip. Gossip. And slander. Slander. Well, we're just saying, you know, things that may not be true. Well, when we look at that in relation to, say, murder, ah, that's not such a big deal. And yet it's in the same list. Yeah. Paul didn't differentiate between those. No, not at all. <laughs> but it's saying when you talk bad about somebody, that's a sin. Shouldn't be doing it. Right. Uh, it also lists God haters. God haters. We have to kind of deal with that. There are, are people, and we see it all the time, that have no place in their life for God, mm-hmm. but it's still in the same list. Yeah. Know, it is something that he considers to be sin, but can be repented. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, I, I'll interject one quick thing because uh, an article flashed into my brain about a God hater because he had used that term to describe himself. I read this article a few months ago. He was a neo-Nazi in the South who used to help lead all kinds of protests. And uh, he called himself a God hater. I mean, he hated people, but he hated God, I think, even more, which is why he hated certain types of people. (laughs) But the thing that turned him around was a black preacher who befriended him and showed him humanity and love even though they were miles apart in their ideology. And he got to really appreciate this black pastor who poured his life into this guy. And this is a white guy, of course. And uh, he started to see that it was the love that was drawing him to this black guy. The black guy even invited him to a backyard barbecue with some other family and friends, most of whom were black. And this white guy accepted. And he goes, sure, that sounds like fun. <laughs> And he showed up, and they're hanging around with one another. Well, this guy became a believer in Jesus Christ because he saw real love demonstrated to him, and they were loving him even though he was spewing hate against their race and against the God who made all humans. (laughs) And then he came to discover that everybody is made in the image of God. And so there's one race, and that's the human race. And now he's a God lover, and he's been going through painful (laughs) tattoo removal procedures to remove some awful tattoos that would spew that same kind of hate. But you're right. There are some people, and they are literally God-haters, as this guy was. But they're not beyond God's grace, because God's grace is bigger than the hate. Next in our list are three that are, again, kind of related. Insolence. Insolence. Arrogance. Arrogance. And boasting. Boasting. Mm. They all seem to be building up the one person. I'm so great that I can be arrogant and I'm going to tell you all about it. I'm going to boast about all of my, you know, all of my goodness and all of of the great things that I've done. 
Yeah. It's putting yourself ahead of your relationship with God because um, we know that all good things come from him and without him, we are nothing. So I don't have anything to boast about just like what Paul said. Yeah. Yeah. And boy, aren't those people hard to work with? <laughs> <laughs> Folks, they're always going on about their achievements and stuff like that. You want to just go uh, time out for just a minute there. Can we talk about something else out there other than all the things that you've done that are so great? <laughs> It's very difficult to get along with folks like that. But yeah, arrogance, boasting, insolence. Oof. Yeah. Uh, one straight out of the Ten Commandments. Disobeying your parents. Disobeying parents. Uh, yeah, this is not honoring the mother and father. Another one that kind of re relates back to sexual sin, infidelity. Infidelity. But that could be not necessarily just uh, you know cheating on your spouse because you can can uh, not uh, have fidelity in a number of areas. Yeah, and I think there's that emotional infidelity that has to precede yeah. physical infidelity. And if we can catch it quickly and have a small R repentance, we can avoid the big, the biggie when we slid into an actual affair, for example. So yeah, infidelity can show up in a number of ways and in a number of different areas, as you say. Well, and, and Christ addressed that issue when he said, you know, if you have lusted in your heart for someone else yeah it's the same as if you had committed the act right so yep. you can be um or lack fidelity as you say on an emotional level on a on a visual level uh, or on a physical level if you let it go too far so i remember the media kind of uh jumped all over that when jimmy carter actually answered yeah. somebody who asked them have you ever committed adultery and he said no but i've lusted after a woman in my heart and the Bible tells me that that's just as bad. <laughs> yeah, I think that was a very honest answer. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one that you wouldn't necessarily expect from a politician. But uh, I, you know, uh, I thought that was a very brave statement by somebody who was you know, seeking uh, the highest office in the land. Very brave indeed. Yeah. yeah. So a couple of other ones we have here is being loveless or not loving someone. Loveless. And not showing mercy merciless. Interesting. Let me pause right there and say that to me stands out as something that unfortunately I have seen pretty often in people who would find themselves in a very judgmental style of self-professed Christianity. There would be some people who would march around with placards condemning certain lifestyles and specific sins in the list that we've just gone through. And they would say, God hates you because he hates this sin. And they're loveless. And they are merciless in the way that they're approaching that. And I would say they probably have done more damage to burn bridges between Christianity, true Christ followers, who are humble enough to say, I am a sinner myself, and I'm saved by grace. And I just want to help other people find that grace. But the way they come across as loveless, I think some of those kinds of folks, the way they approach their so-called evangelism, I don't know how they can call it evangelism because evangelism means sharing the good news. <laughs> it doesn't sound like good news the way they're presenting it. I, I think some of those folks are going to be the ones that when they stand before the judgment seat, Christ is going to say, I never knew you. And they'll say, yeah, but we did all this stuff in your name. And they'll say, you may have, but I never knew you. Yeah. So Loveless is a big one. <laughs> Not, not bigger than the rest, because they're all sin. <laughs> <laughs> and then the, we finish this passage, and it's talking about the people who would be, ne 
necessarily engaging in one or more of these various sins. Mm-hmm. And it says, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Mm-hmm. So it's not just somebody doing them, but say, yeah, that's okay. doesn't matter. You know, all of them now stand condemned and are deserving of death, which is a pretty serious charge. Yowza. No kidding. To say, yeah, the penalty is death for this one. And I know that Jesus had to deal with that. I mean, he dealt with some folks that were clearly guilty of things that should have been penalized by death because they were approving of some of the things that practiced many of the things that we just went through together. And speaking of Jesus, he's the one we want to use as a good example. If we're going to bust the myths and if we're going to get down to the truth about what do we do with all these sins? If there is not different gradations, different levels of sins, then what do we do with that? How do we escape the penalty of sin? So how did Jesus deal with somebody who was clearly guilty of sin? We need to look at that. And I think you've got a good story that would help us understand how Jesus approached this topic. Yeah, I'm going to read this directly from the text out of John 8, because it's so powerful, especially when we look at, you know, as some people in their own minds will rank the sin, Mm-hmm. This was a pretty heavy-duty one. This was the woman caught in adultery. Oh, yeah. And the text starting in verse 2. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all of the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them, just something he did quite often. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? Mm. They were using the question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Jesus bent down, started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down, wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. Wow. Yeah, what a story. There were some things that they were, the Pharisees were seriously doing wrong in this whole scenario. Indeed they were. And because Jesus knew that, and he knew what was in the hearts of these Pharisees, he knew that they were doing wrong. I I couldn't help but wonder if what he was writing in the sand could have been either individual sins of those who were standing around holding stones in their hand at the time. People don't know. They speculate. Or I wonder if he could have been writing some of the addresses of the Old Testament passages where the real law was couched for them. Because if he had just given the address for a couple of these places where the law showed these Pharisees, they would have remembered what the law really stated. And the law stated that if somebody was caught in the act that way, that both the man and the woman should be stoned. (laughs) which means that there was only one person there that they were seeking to stone and they had not brought the man with them. That in itself would have been kind of a big gulp moment, not the kind of big drink you get at 7-Eleven, but like gulp, oh my. But he didn't resort to violent measures in dealing with them. He simply stooped to the ground, wrote something very quietly, 
He took control of the situation, but he did so peacefully, and he was clearly in control all the way through the scenario. And he showed compassion for this woman. That was the thing that boggles my mind, too. In the midst of this violent scenario where a lot of people would escalate the situation, he de-escalated it while showing compassion for the woman and still managed to send these people away by merely writing in the sand. How masterful is that? <laughs> well, I, I find it interesting that they were making a show of it because yeah. they brought her to him in front of the big crowd. Right. And say, hey, what are you going to do about this? You know, great and glorious Jesus who says he's the son of God. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't really do anything other than make them question their own motivation. Yeah. And when they walked away, he relates to her quietly, individually, savior to sinner. Isn't that something? <sighs> One of the things I marveled at was the fact that he never called any of them out by name either. He didn't publicly humiliate an individual. He called out the sin in general and said, let the first one of you who can clearly say, I have not sinned, you go ahead and cast that first stone. Well, that affected all of them because all of them were sinners. And they had to admit that. And so they dropped their stones one by one and walked away. That, I think, also, by the way, should help us in our approach as people who are trying to put forward some apologia, apologetics, the things that would support our belief in a loving God, that we should not be attacking individuals, that we should be attacking those principles that would come against what we stand for, that we would be attacking concepts without personally attacking individuals. And I see too many people attacking individuals, and they wind up putting up so many roadblocks that they wind up shooting themselves in the foot and ruining their witness. And they're always against somebody instead of being for Christ. And I would much rather Christians being for Christ and elevating him instead of always putting other people down. And Jesus wasn't putting them down. He was putting down the sin because he hated the sin, but he still loved the sinners. <laughs> and he showed the woman that he still loved her, and yet he didn't let her off the hook for the behavior either. You know, we've said it was all about the relationship, that he's not only about the behavior, but he would have liked that behavior to change too, because he said, yeah, no one here is left to condemn you, neither do I condemn you, but now go and leave your life of sin. He accomplished all of that. He accomplished everything, and he did so winsomely, compassionately, de-escalating the situation. He did it all. What an amazing teacher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's very encouraging the way he left that. He said, you can leave a life of sin, and you should. Right. And because I haven't condemned you for what's happened in the past, you can move on from here and live a life without sin. I mean, that's a perfect picture of what happens when we repent and confess our sins to him. He just says, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to live my life for you, not in the mud that I've been in for years and years. And you're so right, because he does forgive all of that, wipes it away, clean slate. Yeah, it's a beautiful picture. I think we're to the point where we're going to cross those denominational lines here a little bit. But not in a bad way. Mm -hmm. We're going to take a concept that 
one major denomination talks about. That's the, the concept of a mortal sin, mm-hmm. which we can define as a gravely sinful act that can lead to damnation if the person doesn't repent of the sin before they die. Right. Now, a sin to be considered a mortal sin, it has to have three conditions. Mm-hmm. And that is, it has to be a grave matter, a very serious sin. Mm-hmm. And it's got to be con- committed with full knowledge and deliberate consent. Okay, so there's a willful intent associated with that. Right, and it's got to be a bad one. So we talked about, here's our big long list. Uh, gossip may not be on there, but murder, man, that's that's a big one. That's going to be a mortal sin. Gotcha. But when we look at sin as described or as uh, conceived in a a more Protestant, a traditional Protestant definition, mm-hmm. all of those sins are the same. None of them are a mortal sin in and of itself, regardless of how it was committed. Mm-hmm. However, if there is no capital R repentance, the big repentance, the first repentance and confession where we realize we have a need for Christ's mm-hmm. uh, righteousness to come into our life, then every sin is a mortal sin in that if we don't confess it and repent, then it is going to separate us from God for eternity. Right. So I'm trying to see if I can couch that a slightly different way. In a sense, before the big R, capital R repentance, before we have said, yes, I'm going to trust Christ for my salvation, then the very fact that we are continuing to live apart from that relationship, that automatically puts everything into that category of a mortal sin, because the real mortal sin is rejection of Christ. Am I saying that, kind of codifying that correctly? Right, and then that brings a, a, a little more depth to the whole process. But it, it really comes down to, because we have sinned, all have sinned and fallen short. Mm-hmm. And if we have one, then we're guilty of all. Then what we deserve is death and eternal separation from Christ, which is why we need that first big repentance. Romans chapter 3, boom, boom, boom. Right, right there. <laughs> But then on the other side of this cross-denominational discussion, there's another type of sin Mm -hmm. called a venial sin. And I think you have some thoughts on that. I do. And according to one uh, religious tradition, a venial sin would become a lesser sin that does not result in a complete separation from God. So it does not result in damnation to hell as an unrepented mortal sin would. A venial sin consists in acting as one should not without the actual incompatibility with the state of grace that a mortal sin implies. So a venial sin in this particular tradition would be a lesser sin than a mortal sin, and so it doesn't result in your going to hell, but it does actually injure your relationship with God. It breaks one's friendship with God, but it doesn't result in a complete death of the relationship. Now, after saving grace, any sin breaks the fellowship and requires a lowercase r repentance. So in the Protestant look at this, we would be saying, okay, since the only mortal sin is rejection of God, rejection of Christ as Savior, then really that, in effect, it makes every sin after our salvation, a venial sin. 
in a sense, that means that any sin that we commit now that we have been saved, so to speak, to use that terminology, it destroys the fellowship. It chips away at the fellowship or the relationship between us and God, but it doesn't cause us to lose our salvation. So for us, that means that as long as we have breath in our lungs and life left in our mortal bodies, we can still repent of our sins by confessing to Jesus that we need his forgiveness. So that sort of means that there's a pretty big difference, I think, in the way these are described between that tradition uh, that that really has a big demarcation between mortal sin and venial sin and Protestants who would say all sins for us essentially are venial sins because we took care of the mortal sin when we got saved. <laughs> yeah, I think it, it kind of stems back from you know a, a different perspective between the two large uh, religious groups mm -hmm. on how salvation works which is a discussion for another time. Right. But it really points out that we have to work on that, that lowercase r repentance, that confession of the sins as we walk to maintain the relationship. And we do that on a regular basis. I mean, if, if we're basically walking in the spirit, we know when we do something wrong. Yeah. It's right there in front of us. And we can go, boom, I mm -hmm. repent of that. I confess that I know that it's breaking our relationship. And I want to turn from it and get that fellowship back. We can do that as soon as we're aware that we've just done something wrong, whether it's a word, whether it's an act, whatever it is, yeah. we can rebuild that relationship immediately. And that's why it's important that we, what we call abide in Christ mm -hmm. and we are grafted into the vine. He uses mm -hmm. that picture a number of times because really apart from him, we can't do anything. No. So why would we want to live in that condition? Right. You know, there's a big difference between having the spirit available 24-7, 365, mm -hmm. as before trusting in Christ, and the person who has trusted and is now the new creation. The difference is, is seen just like you mentioned before, Romans 7, Romans 8. Romans 7 is tough. If we could go from the last verse of 6 to the first verse of 8, all is good. Yeah. But we get into seven and it's like, <laughs> oh, wretched man that I am. I mean, it's yeah. just right there. Everything that we yeah. struggle with is there. But yeah. then we get to verse one of chapter eight and we go, man, what a difference. And, and that difference is abiding in Christ, being able to immediately turn from that which is wrong to maintain that relationship and that fellowship. Well said. I like that. Yeah. And I, I'm a big proponent of the abiding in Christ concept that we're plugged into that vine. I, I teach that so often because I really get that as being one of the primary things Jesus was trying to get across to us in his teaching about this kingdom of God. He really wants us to abide in him because that's where our strength comes from. That's where our protection comes from. That's where our true satisfaction comes from is when we abide in him. Can I continue to tweak a little bit more about this idea of a sin that leads to death, because okay. I think there's still maybe a few of those little questions that start to arise as we talked about the difference between mortal and venial sins. So I'm going to circle back around to that just briefly, that there are two scriptures that a lot of people would point to. And in fact, in that one tradition that we talk about, where they really talk quite a bit about the mortal sins, there are two scriptures in the New Testament, and they tend to use that as a justification of a sin that leads to death, and they call that the mortal sin then. 
So this mortal versus venial found in these two scriptures. Can you present those two scriptures for us so we can talk about them for a few minutes? Sure. The first one comes out of 1 John 5, and it's verses 16 and 17, and they read, If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. Kind of a somewhat confusing verse as we read it. The other one comes out of Matthew 12. It's verses 31 and 32. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. And those sets of verses have caused so much turmoil in the Protestant church. Oh, man. Why don't you give us some, some more insights into that? I will point us back to, to just last week's podcast. And if you haven't seen that one yet, uh, fellow theologians, I'll invite you to check out episode 15 because we go into it in slightly more detail. And then in the description to this podcast episode, I'm going to put a link to a Southern Seminary professor. It's only four minutes and a few seconds talking about the unforgivable sin. And I would direct you to that for some good insight about that. But I think it's helpful for us to know, to capture the fact that I think what was really being said here in the New Testament that sin that leads to death, probably in this case, especially paired with the verse uh, from Matthew, is pointing to the same thing that Jesus was saying the Pharisees had done. They had seen the miracles. They had the Old Testament. They had known the prophets. They knew what the Messiah should have looked like and when he was going to come, and they saw him firsthand, face-to-face, in their midst, and yet they still rejected him. And that's that blaspheming the Holy Spirit. That's the sin that leads to death. I mean, ultimate death. But the unpardonable sin can't be committed by a Christian in our day and age because we don't have Jesus in the flesh the way that the Pharisees had. Now we have the Holy Spirit who seals our salvation. He is there to remind us of the things that Jesus taught us. He's there to convict us when we have gone astray. He's the one who says, "Uh uh-oh, you shouldn't be doing that. You need to have a small R repentance right now. And as I mentioned last week, if you are afraid, if you have a fear that you have committed that sin, you haven't. (laughs) Because that's the Holy Spirit at work convicting you, and you feel guilty about it, which means you can get forgiven for it. You can repent for it. More context. Little brief context about what's happening here in the New Testament. Jesus himself had healed a man who had a demon. This is talking about what some of those religious leaders felt about him in his day and age. He had healed a man who had a demon. Strangely, in response, the response of these people who had actually seen the miracle with their own eyes, they thought, okay, yeah, that's a miracle for sure, but we don't want to attribute that miracle to God because then we would have to admit that maybe Jesus is co-equal with God. We certainly don't want that. (laughs) They were unwilling to say that he was Messiah and that he was God the Son co-equal with God. And so they said, no, the only way that he could have done that, the only way he could have cast out a demon was if he had the power of Beelzebub. 
the power of a demon, the power of Satan in him. That's that's what cast this guy out. So basically, the power of Satan cast out the power of Satan. <laughs> and that just didn't make any sense. And it didn't make any sense to Jesus e either. And he was saying, you know, a house divided is going to fall. And you're dividing the house by doing that. It's illogical. It doesn't make any sense. So there were people who were basically saying, yeah, we cannot ascribe God's power to this man who has just worked a miracle of God in our midst. So the only way we can try to strangely twist it is by saying that he is of the devil. And that is the unpardonable sin because they totally missed the master of the miracle, so to speak. And that's why it was the sin that leads to death. Let's do a quick recap. We covered a lot of ground as we seem to always do. Yes. We had some myths, which we busted, mm -hmm. because we have seen that punishment is not a penalty for sin that, that God wants to meet out for us because he wants to slap us down all the time. Right. It's more about discipline for the sake of rekindling a relationship. Exactly. Because he is more interested in the relationship than the behavior. And when we behave badly, he wants to get our attention. He might throw us a little curveball, which allows us to come back to him yeah. because the relationship is so important that we end up wanting to behave correctly because we want to love him back. And that's how we do it. Mm -hmm. We also busted the myth that there's no cosmic scale of good and evil. Right. You, you can't outweigh your sin with good works because you've broken the law in all ways and your good works might as well be filthy rags. So mm -hmm. um, don't think that's going to hold up if we want to look at uh, judgment in that area. So we might want to look at things more biblically. But in the Bible, we find that there are all kinds of sin. We walked through a bunch of them. There's a bunch more, you know, different lists in different areas. It really doesn't matter because it says we have all sinned. And when we do, we are guilty of breaking all of it. Mm -hmm. So we are totally unrighteous. Mm -hmm. And we need the sinless Savior sacrifice, the shed blood on the cross to cover our sin. And then we can enter a relationship with him. Because when we look at the concepts that we just talked about that are described in one denomination as mortal and venial, mm -hmm. it really puts in our mind that we first need the capital R, the big R repentance, that first repentance when we come mm -hmm. to know our need of the Savior but we also need the little r repentance to maintain that relationship. The first one is a big one. We talked about some of the good things that come from that in another episode, mm -hmm. but that abiding in Christ, being grafted into the vine is where we live our daily lives. And therefore we repent of all of those little sins that happen along the way so that we don't quench the spirit. It comes to mind that there conceivably are folks who are listening to this who have never had that experience they haven't come to know their need and maybe they're being tweaked in their heart right now that says mm -hmm. you know there's something in my life that isn't right and i'm pretty sure that's god saying you've broken the law you've sinned against mm -hmm. me we need to take care of that so how would somebody do that and you're right there may be somebody listening to that and if you are right now i will mention something that we had done with our kids and i see this really as just a microcosm of what god does for us we recognized that punishment in their lives was based on our love for them 
And it was only a very small part of the, the whole discipline process. And the discipline was aimed at the purpose of restoring a relationship. And that was because we love them as well. Same thing with God. The only reason he disciplines is because he wants to restore a relationship. And the only way we can have a restored relationship with him is not through a whole series of punishments. That's a myth that we busted at the beginning of this thing. That's not what he's about. He's about the relationship, which means that if there is a punishment, if we are punished for something, it's because he wants us to take notice that there is something going on in the way of discipline so we can learn from it, so we can restore the relationship with him. And those repentances, whether it's the first one or a bunch of those little ones that go on for the rest of our life, it's because it's a relationship that will bring us satisfaction forever. So I would say to you, if you're looking to try to start that journey for the first time, understanding that there is something magnificent about a holy God that would seek a relationship with unholy people, that's a huge thing. And the only way it's possible. Incomprehensible. <laughs> it is. I don't understand it. I don't, I don't get it, but I accept it. And I accept it because of what Christ did for me on the cross. So that's the starting place. We keep pointing back to the cross as the place where we start to see what God was all about, because that's where justice and love meet. So I would say, if you wanted to say a quick prayer, something like this, I'll give you a model sample prayer of what somebody might say to start that process. I would say, uh, God, I recognize that you are a just God and a holy God, and that I'm a sinner. And I cannot approach you without some bridge that would cross the chasm that stands between you and me. And sin caused the chasm. And thankfully, Jesus Christ, who atoned for my sin on the cross, created a bridge. And I can cross across him to get back to you. And I thank you for that. So I pray that you will forgive me of my sin. Thank you for throwing all of my sin, all of my previous sins, right out into the deepest ocean and that you won't bring them back up again and throw them in my face. And I thank you for your grace and your mercy, which is poured out freely through Christ on my behalf. And now I pray too, that you'll be my guide to help me through the small R repentances, that you seal the deal through the Holy Spirit and that through your Holy Spirit at work in my life, you'll convict me of the times when I disappoint you or when I start to mess up the fellowship, the relationship between me and you so that I'll quickly repent and confess that by just agreeing with you that I've done that. And then that you'll forgive me each time I do those little things like that. So I can continue the journey with you, getting to know you more and more intimately and personally, and that I'll become more and more like Jesus as uh, you promised would happen because you said that he who began the good work in me will be faithful to complete it as I know you will. So thank you for all that. And I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And I hope that if you have done something like that, that you'll tell somebody about it. Uh, and if you have a question for us, or if you have a comment, or if we have encouraged you in some way, please let us know that too. And you can do that by sending an email to ccawthornii at gmail.com or mondayafternoontheologians at gmail.com. We're going to pick up with episode number 17 next time as we're making our way through the teen stages of our podcast. You, our fellow theologians, uh, many, many thanks to you. And please help spread the word to all of your airline pilots that you might know. 
or anybody else for that matter, that there are these crazy two people who talk about theology in a way that hopefully makes it a little bit more easy to understand. Wait a second, just is guys. it for more than just pilots? <laughs> <laughs> we might be able to expand. Okay, um, we'll get a few more. In. That's right. We'll we'll expand our audience to perhaps train engineers. <laughs> or anyone who can spell train or engineer. That opens it up significantly more. <laughs> so thank you, all of you fellow theologians. And I do hope, Rick and I both hope, that you will join us. You say it this time, Rick. For another episode of Monday, Monday Afternoon, Afternoon Theologians. 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 Theologians.